victory in the darkness. It is no secret that we live in a fallen world marked by suffering. We go through tough times. All of us do. We experience disappointment, trials, tribulations. These are realities of life, relational conflict, oppression, attack, declining health, disease, diabetes, cancer, death, and the list goes on. Habakkuk was no stranger to disappointment. He knew what it felt like to be on the receiving end of discouraging news. He knew what it meant to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, to stare in the face of darkness and to feel afraid. We all know what it means to feel afraid. I remember when dad suffered his stroke feeling afraid that my faith would falter. And the church staff gathered around me and they prayed for me. And the Lord helped me through that season of my life. I remember receiving news a number of years back that my blood work came back abnormal and that I stand a higher chance of developing cancer. I needed the Lord to help me overcome my fear I needed the Lord to help me experience victory, even as I faced the potential of dark days. Again, Habakkuk was no stranger to difficult and dark days. He struggled with concerns in his own day, and he would be confronted with the reality that his future contained a promise of great difficulty. Yet Habakkuk, by God's grace, rose in faith and he was able to experience victory in the face of darkness. I pray that we learn from Habakkuk today. I want to ask you to turn in your copy of God's word to Habakkuk chapter 3. And we will dive directly into verse 1 and work our way through the whole chapter. Habakkuk 3, 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Verse 1 indicates the genre that makes up the rest of the chapter. We read a prayer of Habakkuk. Some suggest that the word for prayer can also be understood as hymn or song. I want you to consider three other words in the broader context that point to verses 2 through 19 as being a song, a psalm. Verse 1 ends with according to Shigianoth. And scholars identify the word with music. One definition that has been offered is a wild, passionate song with wild changes of rhythm. We see this same word in the title of Psalm 7, 1, ver, uh, chapter 7, ver, Psalm 7, verse 1, where we read a Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord. Psalm 7 involves the psalmist taking refuge in Yahweh against the backdrop of enemy attack. The psalm is emotionally charged and it parallels this psalm of Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk 3.1 then indicates that what Habakkuk goes on to record is a song meant to be sung as we face dark days, as the people of God in his day were to face the onslaught of the Babylonians. Consider also in verses 3, 9, and 13 Habakkuk's use of Selah. This is a word used throughout the Psalms that many understand as a call to meditate upon and ponder the truths that have been sung. 
And finally, consider the end of verse 19 where Habakkuk states, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. This makes it clear that Habakkuk chapter 3 is a song, a psalm meant to be sung in dark days as dark days approach. Uh, Part of what makes the song of chapter 3 so powerful is the context as well as the content of the song regarding context. We have already seen in chapter 1 in sermons past that Habakkuk is greatly burdened for the godless spiritual condition of the southern kingdom of Judah. The prophet brings his burden to Yahweh, but from Habakkuk's uh, perspective, it seems as if his cries fall on deaf ears. But the Lord listens and he eventually responds. The Lord informs Habakkuk that he is raising up the dreaded Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to bring discipline to his people. And again, this is not what the prophet wanted to hear. His burden intensifies. At this point, Habakkuk rehearses truths about the Lord that strengthen and stabilize his soul. Even so, Habakkuk remains troubled. How can the Lord allow the wicked to swallow up those more righteous than they? Why would the Lord raise up the wicked Chaldeans to bring destruction to God's chosen and precious people? And then in chapter 1, ends with Habakkuk asking the question, will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Are you going to let this go on and on, Lord? Beginning in chapter 2, Habakkuk stations himself on the rampart, closes his mouth, and he waits with eyes and ears wide open. More than anything else, Habakkuk needs a word from the Lord and the Lord meets the prophet's need. The Lord declares that the Chaldeans will not go unpunished. He pronounces woe upon the Chaldeans. We learn throughout the book of Habakkuk that the Lord addresses sin. In chapter 1, he raises up the Chaldeans to bring divine discipline to his own people. And in chapter 2, the Lord makes it clear that the sins of the Chaldeans will not go unpunished. This brings some degree of relief to Habakkuk. The Lord in chapter 2 also peppers his response with truths for Habakkuk to embrace. Precious truths that I believe help Habakkuk. Uh, to have faith and courage and strength in the days to come. Truth number one, the just shall live by faith. Truth number two, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Truth number three, the Lord is in his holy temple. The chapter concludes with the command, let all of the earth be silent before him. I take it that Habakkuk heeds the counsel of the Lord. And as Habakkuk ponders all of what the Lord has revealed, and as he now sits in silence before the Lord, a song is forged in the recesses of the prophet's heart. Habakkuk chapter three contains the contents of the song. And if I were to entitle the song, I might call it victory in the darkness. As we work our way through the song, we will learn lessons regarding what victory is and and how you and I can have victory as we face dark days, difficult times. I'll divide the contents of the song under the following headings. The prophet's request, the prophet's reflections, 
the prophet's response. He looks up to the Lord. He then looks back to what the Lord has done and applies it to his current situation. And then he looks ahead in faith to what the Lord will do. We might break it down this way. We have a request for mercy, a remembrance of mercy, and a trust in God's mercy. Well, let us begin with the prophet's request. We see this in verse 2, where Habakkuk declares, Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. We see here that when facing dark days, the prophet goes directly to God in prayer. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Lord tells us to go directly to God and address him in this way, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hebrews 14, 16, we're commanded to draw near with confidence to the throne of God's grace. And then later in Hebrews ten nineteen, the writer declares, We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have direct access to God. And in our passage, Habakkuk shows us that when times are tough, one does well to go directly to the Lord. Habakkuk then goes on to say, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. Commentators differ over how to interpret this passage. At the center of the debate are two questions. What is the report that he's referring to and how are we to understand fear? What kind of a fear is he talking about? Some understand the report to be what God has already declared in chapters 1 and 2. He's raising up the Chaldeans to bring divine discipline upon his chosen people and God will eventually pour out his wrath upon the wicked Chaldeans. And as Habakkuk thinks this through, he fears. He is trembling and shaking. Later in verse 16, he declares, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound. My lips quivered, decay entered my bones, and in my place I tremble. Clearly, Habakkuk experiences great fear as he anticipates the Lord coming to discipline and even to destroy uh, there are others who understand the report to be about the Lord leading his people out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the land of promise. Those who understand the reference this way see Habakkuk focusing his attention on the mighty acts of God as he moves on behalf of his people to fulfill his good and perfect plan for their lives. He is a mighty God, powerful God, the saving God, gracious and merciful. He delivers his people from slavery and leads them through the wilderness, providing for their needs and brings them into the land of promise. Habakkuk then fears the Lord in the sense that he is filled with reverence, reverential awe and wonder of a great and mighty God who moves on behalf of his beloved and precious people. Regardless of how one understands the report and the fear that follows, this much we can all agree upon. The Lord is worthy of a response. And there are times when it is appropriate for us to think of God's holiness 
If you were able to gaze into the glory of God, you would discover absolute perfection. And when we consider our sins against an infinitely holy God, we would be shaken to the core. Like Isaiah, we might declare, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Uh, With Peter, we might say, away from me, Lord. I am an evil man. And with John, we may fall to the ground as though dead. Uh, But there are also times when, as we contemplate the report about the Lord, When we consider how our mighty warrior and conquering king has come on our behalf to deliver us from slavery, to lead us through this fallen world, and to bring us safely to our eternal home, there ought to be those times when we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and we proclaim, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful, is my Savior's love to me. As we continue in the verse, we observe three aspects to Habakkuk's request. First, he prays to the Lord to revive his work. Second, he prays to the Lord to make his work known. And third, he prays to the Lord to, in his wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk prays to the Lord to revive his work. And this is another way of saying, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Habakkuk wants God to do his thing. Part of what this means is that Habakkuk wants God to reveal himself and to accomplish his purposes in this world. Habakkuk wants the Lord to show up as he did when he delivered his people from captivity, led them through the wilderness and brought them into Canaan. In asking the Lord to revive his work, Habakkuk is also asking uh, for God's discipline and judgment to be exercised. It is already clear from chapter 1 that God will discipline his people. And in chapter 2, we learn the Lord will judge the Chaldeans. They will face the wrath of a holy God. Regarding this verse, one commentator says, God's work is the twofold judgment spoken of already. And the prophet prays God to quicken and make it live because though it brings temporary distress upon his countrymen, it will also cause the destruction of their enemies and reestablish the Jews and crown them with salvation and make the glory of God known to all the earth. And this brings us to the second aspect of Habakkuk's prayer. He prays to the Lord to make his works known. He wants ears and eyes to be opened to the Lord and his dealings with mankind. Brothers and sisters, we are desperate for God to do his work, and it's a work that only he can do in making his works known, revealing himself. Habakkuk wants God's people to know God's work, but he also prays for everyone else. In chapter 2, the Lord promises that a day will come when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Habakkuk is praying in accord with what he knows the Lord will do. He prays that the Lord will make his works known to all mankind. He seems hopeful that the pouring out of God's wrath will result in his works being known. And this dovetails nicely with the third aspect of Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk prays to the Lord to, in wrath, remember mercy. Our Lord can simultaneously be both wrathful and merciful. 
Habakkuk does not ask Yahweh to refrain from wrath. He knows that a holy God cannot ignore sin. Sin is evil and rightly arouses the wrath of a holy God. But he is hopeful that his Lord can remember mercy in the midst of his wrath. And thus Habakkuk prays in wrath. Remember mercy. Does Yahweh answer Habakkuk's prayer? I submit to you that the answer is a resounding yes. The Chaldeans will rise up in power, lay siege to Judah. God's people will be taking, taken into exile under Babylonian captivity. Yet amongst God's people, there remains a remnant of those who prove to be faithful. God remembers mercy. We have heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We have heard of Daniel in the lion's den. And there were no doubt countless others who by God's grace stood firm in wrath. He remembers mercy. Beyond the remnant of God's people who persevered in faith, there were outsiders who trusted in Yahweh as well. And not the least of which was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar would come to faith and he would eventually declare and none of this would have happened had the Babylonians not taken God's people into captivity to begin with and the king declares now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all of his works are right and his ways are just in wrath God remembered mercy Habakkuk's prayer to the Lord to in wrath remember mercy is answered but we would be remiss if we failed to acknowledge the greatest demonstration of God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer. When in due time, the second person of our triune God stepped down from heaven and he enters into this fallen world. God the Son clothed himself in frail humanity. He was born of a virgin, laid to rest in a feeding trough. The God-man succeeded in what we have failed to do. He lived an absolutely perfect and pristine life. He never sinned. He never failed, never in desire, word, thought, deed. And then he went to the cross as the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He went to the cross in our place. He died in our place for us. He was punished for our transgression. The wrath of almighty God was poured out upon his innocent son. And at the same time, God's mercy was poured out upon guilty, vile, and wretched, hell-deserving sinners such as you and I. Yes, in wrath, our great God remembered mercy. And such is the hope of sinners throughout the centuries that a holy God would conceive the plan to send his beloved son to sacrifice his innocent life for sinners such as you and I. When our Lord was crucified on the cross for you and I, God placed his stamp of approval upon Habakkuk's prayer. In wrath, God remembered mercy. Well, having considered the prophet's request, let us now uh, turn to the prophet's reflections. The prophet's reflections. 
He's going to look into the past. In verse 3, all the way through verse 15, the prophet reflects on Yahweh's works in the past as revealed in his word. Let us not lose sight of the fact that the prophet has the word of God in him. He allows the word to richly abide in him. He draws from what God has done to have victory during his days of darkness. He especially draws from God's dealings with his people as Yahweh delivers them out of captivity, brings them through the wilderness, and leads them into the land of promise. And I think this is pretty clear as we work our way through these verses that that is at the very heart of what Habakkuk is drawing from. As Habakkuk reflects on God's dealings with his people in the past, he finds strength for what lies ahead. The same God who was with his people and who moves in miraculous ways on behalf of his people is the God in whom Habakkuk trusts. He is Habakkuk's deliverer. He is the God of his salvation. Habakkuk is comforted to know that the God who has been with his people in the past is the same God who will be with his people in the present and going into the future. So let us join Habakkuk as he reflects, beginning in verse 3. Verse 3, God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Habakkuk here refers to the theater in which the Lord displayed great power after he delivered Israel from Egyptian captivity and as he goes before his people to lead them through the wilderness and into the land of promise. Uh, Taman is a city located in the south of Edom. Mount Paran was located in the wilderness of Paran, south of the promised land. It was the first site where the Israelites encamped after leaving Mount Sinai. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 10, 11 through 13. It is the place where Moses in Deuteronomy 33, 2 says, The Lord rose in all his glory like the bright sun to shine on the Israelites during their wilderness journey. Mount Paran was also the place where Ishmael once dwelt, Genesis twenty one twenty one. Ishmael was the son of Hagar. It was there in Paran when Hagar was perhaps at her lowest point, kicked out of the household of Abraham, completely out of water, convinced her son would dehydrate and die. So she left him under a bush and she cried out to the Lord. And then in Genesis twenty one seventeen we read, And God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven, said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, as if it wasn't there before. But her eyes were closed to see that it was there. The provision was there. She just couldn't see it. And so it tells us, the scripture says, God opened her eyes so that she saw the well of water. And she went and she filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad and he grew and he lived, and he lived in the wilderness and he became an archer and, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. As you can see, 
God was no stranger to Mount Paran. He was no stranger to the land of Paran. God proves to Hagar and Ishmael to be merciful and compassionate. He is a provider. And the God who comes from Mount Paran goes before his people as a warrior and conquering king to lead them through the wilderness into the land of promise. Habakkuk likely draws from Deuteronomy 33, 2 through 3, where before dying, Moses says, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there were flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All thy holy ones are in thy hand and they followed in thy steps. Everyone receives of thy words. Moses, before his death, encourages God's people with reminders of the Lord's glorious presence at Sinai and then Mount Paran. God's people are reminded of the Lord's mighty work through the, throughout the wilderness. And Habakkuk seizes upon such encouragement and he applies it to his current situation. He knows he must remember the Lord's mighty works to find encouragement to face the immediate future. And such encouragement continues as we come to verse 3b. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. Take note of the words Habakkuk uses to describe the Lord. We have a picture of God's splendor, his glory, his majesty covering the sky as when the Lord revealed himself to Moses and in the giving of the commandments upon Mount Sinai. Habakkuk likely draws from various passages throughout the Pentateuch as he presents the glory of God. He may have had Exodus 19 in mind when the Lord visited Moses at Sinai. We again read about the same event in Deuteronomy as the Lord speaks through Moses to the second generation of Israelites. Moses reminds the Israelites of the great theophany when the Lord met Moses at Mount Sinai and gave him the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 4.10, Moses tells the second generation to, quote, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. And scholars agree that Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. In verse 11, Moses reminds the Israelites who were children at the time. This is the second generation. He says, you came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain. And the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens. In verse 12, Moses continues, the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. We can forward in Deuteronomy to chapter 5 where the very same event is addressed. Moses summons all of Israel and he reminds them, verse 6, the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In our passage, Habakkuk is drawing from this event and various passages, I believe, related to this event. He's remembering how the Lord in the wilderness came to his people and how at Sinai as well as other places throughout the wilderness, the glory of the Lord was manifest to his own people. 
Habakkuk perhaps resting in God's promise of chapter 2, verse 14, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, declares in chapter 3, verse 3, our, our passage here, that the earth is full of his praise. Professor Charles Feinberg, a distinguished professor of a Jewish background who knew God's word well, he views this chapter as prophetic. Habakkuk draws from the past, derives strength and hope for the present, and then anticipates a future day, a day when the glory and splendor of the Lord will cover the heavens and the entire earth will be filled with his praise. Well, coming back to verse 4, it says his radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Have you ever stared into the bright sun? You can hardly look at the sun without being blinded. 1 Timothy 6.16 describes Christ as dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. The light emanates from God and signifies his holiness and his glorious nature. How do we understand the rays of light flashing from his hand? Some theologians point out that Moses had the law in his hand, and he did as he came down from Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 33.2 says, And at his right hand was a fiery law unto them. Pastor John MacArthur says, I think he had in his hand a law that spun out brilliance. The end of verse 4, there is the hiding of his power. This speaks of the fact that the brightness of the light that surrounds Almighty God serves as the hiding place of his majesty. We are reminded of how Moses needed to put a veil over his face after coming down from the mountain. The glory of God in the face of Moses would have been too much for the Israelites to behold. And so Habakkuk presents a vision of a glorious God that is revealed in his word. Habakkuk's consideration of God's dealings with humanity includes a reference to divine punishment. And in verse 5, he says, Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. We see this in God's dealings with the Egyptians when Pharaoh repeatedly hardened his heart to the command of God. You don't want to mess with God. And we see this in Numbers 13 when Moses sent spies into the land of Canaan. They returned with a report of a land flowing with milk and honey, but they also spoke of the people in the land who they thought would be impossible to overcome. There's giants in the land. They instilled fear among the people of God. The negative aspect of the report along with the fearful response was not pleasing to the Lord. And in Numbers 14, 11, we read, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. Well, fortunately, in this instance, Moses prayed for the people and the Lord spared them. But we learn from God's word to Moses that he is one who sends pestilence. The Lord later declares in Numbers 14, 26 to 38, that the first generation of Israelites who had been delivered from Egypt would fall in the wilderness. 
Even the men who returned from Canaan with a negative report would, quote, die by plague before the Lord. We see how important it is then to have faith, trust, hope, and confidence in the Lord. Uh, The Israelites would be laid low in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. And we read about that in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Habakkuk's reference to pestilence and plague in verse 5 reminds us of a future day. The great and terrible day of the Lord in which God in judgment brings disease and death across the globe. Pastor Milton preached about that when he took us through the book of Revelation. Not only does the Lord have the power to inflict, pest, to inflict pestilence and plague, but he rules over his created order. And we see this and more as we come to verse 6. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Here the Lord looks out over the globe and he is fully aware of all that is going on. Nothing escapes his notice. It says that the Lord startled the nations The word speaks of shaking, trembling, emotional turmoil, as well as a physical dislocation. God's power in leading his people out of captivity through the wilderness into Canaan became known and as a result invoked fear amongst the nations. This brings hope to Habakkuk in his current situation and the passage continues, yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered, the ancient hills collapsed, his ways are everlasting. Not only do the nations tremble, but the mountains shatter and the hills collapse in the face of a fierce and holy God who looks upon the landscape and marches ahead on behalf of his people and in judgment of his enemies. Mountains and hills in scripture symbolize stability, durability, and security. Micah 6.2 refers to them as the enduring foundations of the earth, but in our passage, they're shattered, they collapse, reminding us that God alone is stable, durable, and secure. And the ways of the Lord are everlasting, he says. God's plan will come to fruition. There is no stopping Yahweh. 2 Peter 2, 12 to 13 tells us that the Lord will one day destroy this world and create a new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells. And we do well to believe God at his word. In verse 7, we read, I saw the tents of Cushion under distress. The, The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. And here the nations that tremble are exemplified more specifically by the tribes of Cushion and Midian. They were nomadic groups indicating that even those with the ability to be on the move are unable to escape the Lord. It is an exercise in futility to flee from the Lord. When he comes in judgment, there is no escaping unless, of course, you have fled for refuge in Christ alone. Christ is the ark of our salvation. He is our Passover lamb He is our deliverer, a fortress in whom we find protection, a rock that is stable for us. We can hide in him. But outside of Christ, there is no escaping the wrath of Almighty God. And we turn now to verse 8. Did the Lord rage against the rivers or was thine anger against the rivers or was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride on thy horses, on thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made bare, the rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. 
this passage reveals a shift away from Habakkuk talking about the Lord to his talking directly to the Lord. Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea? Habakkuk's interrogation is bold. But what is the answer to his questions? How are we to understand this? We have no record of an answer. Is the answer an implied yes? Was the Lord's fierce anger directed in part at the rivers and the sea? Does this bring our attention um, to God's wrath as being poured out even upon creation? Or is the implied answer no? And are we to understand God's rage as being directed against his enemies? The reference to rivers and sea recalls God's power over the Nile River, the Red Sea, and the Jordan River. And each event is accompanied by God's judgment upon his enemies along with his saving power directed upon his beloved people. The end of verse 8 tells us that the Lord comes riding on horses. He comes riding on his chariots of salvation. The Lord also makes use of weapons to stay the enemy. This vision of the Lord gives Habakkuk strength, courage, and hope as he anticipates the near future when the wicked Chaldeans lay waste to Judah. Uh, The prophet believes that in due time, the Lord will, in fact, save his people. He comes riding on his chariots of salvation. That is who he is. That is what he does. At the end of verse 9, Habakkuk declares, Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Here again, at the very least, we encounter a God who is powerful and mighty. He rules over all of creation. It is he who did cleave, or he split the earth with rivers, a picture of rivers flowing out of the earth. And throughout the earth, the mountains quaked. God's power and authority over creation is witnessed throughout Scripture. Habakkuk here, I think, may be referring to the great flood. On that day, God's wrath was poured out upon humanity. Only Noah and his family were spared. They found refuge in the ark. But outside the safety of the ark, the rains came. Rivers cleaved the earth. There was a mighty downpour of water that swept by. And from the deep, the high hand of water raged upwards. The world's population was decimated. A picture of God's wrath and judgment upon a sinful humanity. Habakkuk's meditation on God's word and his mighty acts throughout history served to strengthen his soul. He believes in a mighty and powerful God who rules over all creation and who crushes his enemies and saves his beloved people. So we continue in verse 11. It says that sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of thine arrows, at the radiance of thy gleaming spear. Here we're reminded of Israel's victory over the Amorites at Gibeon as they seek to conquer the land of promise. In answer to Joshua's prayer, the Lord caused the sun and moon to remain still. Thus the day was lengthened and the Israelites were able to defeat their enemy miraculously. Joshua 10.14 tells us there was no day like that before or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought. For Israel. 
Habakkuk continues in verse 12. In indignation thou didst march through the earth. In anger thou didst trample the nations. Indignation? Anger? Such words Habakkuk uses to describe a God who marches through the earth and he tramples the nations. The justice of God will fall upon his enemies and upon all of those who reject Christ as their Lord and Savior. But the Lord is not all about indignation and anger. There is a flip side, right? There is a flip side. In verse 13, Habakkuk declares, Thou didst go forth for the salvation of thy people, for the salvation of thine anointed. Brothers and sisters, the Lord saves his people. The anointed may refer simply to God's people, thus God saves his people. Or the anointed may be a reference to Moses, who was God's choice man to lead Israel out of captivity through the land of promise. The anointed may have prophetic undertones, as some suggest, pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. Anointed means Messiah. The Greek Old Testament has the word Christus, which means Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one sent by God to secure our salvation through his death on the cross. At the very least, we have a clear sense from verse 13 that the mighty hand of God moves to save his people. That speaks of his love, his mercy, his goodness, kindness, and grace. The text continues in verse 13b. Thou didst strike or crush the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck, Selah. The language brings to mind God's promise in Genesis 3.15 where God declares to the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. And while Pharaoh or perhaps later the king of the Chaldeans may rightly be viewed as the head of the house of evil, Satan is the ultimate head of the house of evil. And we are reminded here that Yahweh defeats evil along with all who would propagate evil in this fallen world. In our passage, the head of the house of evil will be struck on the head and be laid open from thigh to neck. Brothers and sisters, the Lord stretches out his hand to punish evil. And I believe this is a source of encouragement to the prophet. What a comfort for Habakkuk to know that God is a just God. He punishes the evildoer. And not only that, but, but those who do the bidding of the head of the house of evil, they are doomed as well. And we see this in verse 14, where Habakkuk proclaims, Thou didst pierce with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. Those who will be pierced through are the oppressors of God's people. Uh, they will come to ruin. The Lord in his sovereignty will see to it that the oppressors will be pierced through by the spears of their leader. Verse 15 reads, Thou didst tread on the sea with thy horses on the surges of many waters. 
Some see this as another reference to God's miraculous protective intervention on behalf of Israel at the Red Sea. This historical event, as John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur says, demonstrates God's sovereign rulership of the universe and provides assurance to the troubled prophet that the Lord could be counted on to save his people once more. The prophet looks back. He considers God's work in history. He, he, with his knowledge of the Old Testament, God's dealings with his people, he derives strength and encouragement and he presents some of that to us in this song that he is writing. He thinks through the themes of scripture and he derives strength for the days to come. And we discover this as we turn to the prophet's response. The prophet's response. Read with me verse 16. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones and in my place, I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Habakkuk focuses on the dark days that lie ahead. He is shaken to the core. He trembles in his inner being. His lips quiver. He feels as if the process of death in his body is quickening. There is nothing like the intense stress of very bad news to cause a person to age. The prophet goes on to reiterate the fact that he trembles, but the inward trembling has given way to an outward trembling. Imagine seeing the prophet at this moment, watching him tremble. What's the matter? And then hearing him tell you what is about to happen. We would begin to tremble as well, I think. I would not consider myself any better than the prophet. It is at this moment that Habakkuk advances with one of the greatest, one of the greatest declarations of faith recorded anywhere in all of Scripture. I want you to listen to what Habakkuk says. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. He anticipates a day of darkness in which utter destruction surrounds him. The agricultural livelihood of his people will be completely decimated. No figs, no fruit, no olives, no oil, no food in the fields, no flocks, no sheep, no goats, no cattle. Implied is starvation. Loved ones will die not to mention the other crimes that the Chaldeans will commit against the people of God. Habakkuk knows he will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And even so, he goes on to say, verse 18, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He will not allow the difficult and dark days that wait for him to deter his commitment to and trust in the Lord. He will exalt in the Lord. He will rejoice. He says, in the God of my salvation, nothing changes the fact 
that he is a saving God, that he will save me. Come hell or high water, come the darkest of days, he will deliver me, is what the prophet is telling himself, is what he is telling us, and this is what he is calling us to sing and to believe and to embrace. I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He sees his God as a mighty God who delivers his people from captivity, leads them through the wilderness, and brings them into the land of promise. It is inside this narrative that he finds hope. Habakkuk ends his song with a vivid picture that communicates God's gracious work in his life. Listen to what he says. The Lord is my strength. He's the source of my strength. In the dark days that lie ahead, I look to him as the one who will strengthen me. He will help me. He will uphold me. The Lord is my strength. And then he says, he has made my feet like hinds feet. And he makes me to walk on high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Let's sing this song. But again, made my feet like hinds feet. They say a picture is worth a thousand words and Habakkuk presents for us a picture that expresses the Lord's grace in his life. Listen again to his description. He has made my feet like hinds feet. He has done a good work in my life. He has enabled and equipped and empowered me to be able to handle what lies ahead. He has made my feet like hinds feet. And this word indicates something to the effect of a mountain goat or an ibex animal that was known in this world in this day. Have you ever seen an ibex? Have you ever seen a picture of the ibex? Oh my word. I've seen some pictures of them and it's absolutely astonishing. You look at these pictures and they're like hundreds of feet up there. The cliff is straight up and down and you see these little edges, you know, like one inch edges sometimes, very little. And you've got this animal, this fairly large animal. He's on the cliff face and he's just kind of, it looks like he's hanging there in midair as if he's suspended there. And you look at the ibex and you think to yourself, how in the world did it get there? You think to yourself, how in the world can that thing stay there? And then you think to yourself, how in the world is an animal going to get to a place of safety? But he's able. He does. And and the prophet says, he has made my feet to be like hinds feet. He knows how to put me in these most difficult and dangerous spots. And he knows how to keep me in those spots. He has equipped me. He has enabled me. And I can hang on the cliffside. And it can look to others as if I am going to fall and die. But I will not. He will get me through to, to the place I need to go. He has made my feet like hinds feet. And he makes me walk on my high places. Do you feel God strengthening you through his word as you look at this picture? As you hear the prophet speak to you? As you understand that our God is a great and mighty glorious God and that he seeks to visit his people and in fact he has in Christ on the cross who died and was raised up and ascended? We have a God who leads us as the conquering king, our savior, our deliverer. We know that in him, all of our sins have been completely atoned for. We know that because of him, there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? 
There is no condemnation, not one drop. Why? Because the Lamb of God took upon himself all of the punishment that we deserve. No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that you are a sinner? And do you believe that God sent his son as the Savior to die on the cross for you? And do you believe that the only way of salvation is through Christ? He is the ark of your salvation. He is the deliverer. He is the Savior. He is the Lamb of God. Do you believe that through faith in him, you will make your way into the promised land? Do you believe that? And if you do, you are saved. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He has passed over from death into life. You but have to believe that he is your savior. He's the only way of salvation. And even as he led his people through the wilderness into the land of promise, so too he will lead you into the promised land, into heaven. You will experience joy abundantly fullness of joy in his presence pleasures forevermore if you but believe in christ and i know the majority of you believe and brothers and sisters what great news but for those of you who have yet to believe today right now believe it's all you need to do he died on the cross because you're a sinner Your sins against the holy God deserve punishment. But he was punished in your place so that through him you escape the punishment. Your sins can be forgiven. Washed clean, though your sins be as scarlet, the prophet says, they shall be white as snow. White as snow. Do you want your sins to be white as snow? Do you want to be washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What keeps you? What prevents you? Is it fear? Is it sin? What prevents you from coming to faith in Christ, believing in him? Don't let anything or anyone stop you right now from doing what Habakkuk did. He went directly to God and you can go directly to God through the Lord Jesus Christ who died buried, raised, and descended and seated at the right hand of the Father. Child of God, we are reminded through Habakkuk's song of victory that we do well when facing dark days to lift our voices and to pour out our hearts to the Lord. We are to look to the Lord for our salvation. We are reminded to look back and remember the mighty works of God and how he goes before his people to deliver them from captivity, lead them through the wilderness and bring them safely into the land of promise. Unlike Habakkuk, we have the advantage of looking back and beholding the lamb who was slain for our sin. With such a mighty work of God in our rear view mirror, we ought to move ahead with confidence and full assurance, come what may, even in the darkest of days, that our Lord will see us through. We have considered the prophet's request, 
his reflections and his response. And through this, we learn that we can have victory in the darkness as we look up in faith, look back in faith, and look forward in faith. Dear Lord God, help us, Lord. We are like the Israelites in the wilderness. So many of them struggled in their faith, laid low in the wilderness, struggled with sin. Lord, we pray for deliverance. Stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. Deliver us. Let your will be done, Lord. And be our Savior, as you in fact are. Let us walk by faith. Habakkuk walked by faith. The just shall live by faith. And he is the model of that faith. Give to us faith. Lord, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Forgive us our sins, God. Forgive us for our anger. Forgive us for our lust. Forgive us for our laziness. Forgive us, Lord. <laughs> Lord, we have people here. Is struggling in sin. The <laughs> Lord help us. Help us, Lord, the shepherds of this flock, to bless your people. Help us, Lord, in our counseling ministry to help your people, help your people to see in humility to receive the word implanted. And let the day come when we look back and we recall the mighty works of a glorious God in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.